Would you open your Bibles tonight to 2 Corinthians chapter 11? Having authority is a challenge because anybody can misuse authority. You've heard the old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the challenge of having some form of authority is to be able to delicately balance your submission to the Lord and your authority with other people. That's a balance that Paul the Apostle has been discussing beginning in last chapter, going on now to the rest of 2 Corinthians to the very end. There was a group of people in Corinth that was challenging his authority, his apostle uh, position, his calling of God. They didn't think he was to be considered apostolic. They called themselves apostles. And so Paul, though it was awkward to him, felt it necessary to discuss this whole thing about authority. Churches especially are in danger of abusing power because guilt is a powerful motivator. Manipulation works. I can come with a heavy rap and I can make people feel guilty and motivate people by feeling guilty. For instance, if I begin tonight by saying, how, many, how long have you prayed this morning? Have you prayed an hour? Raise your hand. Or how many chapters of the Bible did you read today? You know, automatically you're going to go, oh, those are areas I don't do well in, I'm not consistent in, or whatever. And we have to be careful not to manipulate our authority or power. Last night at my mom's house in California, we turned on Fox News Network, and there was an interesting interview with a southern pastor named Arthur Allen Jr. I don't know if any of you saw this, but this guy would discipline people physically in his church. So he was taking kids who weren't quite living up to par what he thought was right and was actually beating them, whipping them, and uh, just didn't see anything wrong with it. One kid reportedly had been beaten for 30 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes. And I think many times churches are the biggest culprit of abusing power. In uh, the New Testament, one of the things we notice about Jesus is how he never manipulated people. He gave people the freedom to make their choices. When he was with the rich young ruler and the, the kid went away, sorrowful because of what Jesus told him to sell everything he had and give it to the poor and then follow him, the kid went away sorrowful. Jesus didn't say, stop right there. You're giving up everything. What are you doing this for? And he didn't lay a heavy rap on him. He let him exercise complete freedom of choice and respected that choice. When Thomas doubted Jesus, Jesus didn't say, Thomas, I'm going to give you a beating now. You have to stand there for 20 minutes and I'm going to whip you. Jesus didn't do that. When Judas betrayed him and all in the upper room were looking at Jesus, who is it, Lord? Is it I? Jesus could have just said, get him. <laughs> oh, listen, they would have been whoom, all over him like white on rice. They would have just torn him apart. But he didn't manipulate. He allowed people to make their choices. However, part of love is, 
is having the courage to confront. Not manipulate, but confront. The Bible talks about church discipline. The Bible speaks about confronting your brother who sins against you. That is also an exercise of love. And frankly, it's hard to do. The easiest thing to do in the name of love is to avoid a confrontation. To not say anything. Oh, I just don't want to make him feel bad. I don't want to get in his face. I don't want to stir anything up. But there are times when we must confront, and Paul here does confront both the Corinthians who are tolerating false apostles and some of the false apostles who are going to read this letter. Now, before we jump into the first few verses, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 20 for just a moment. Or if you don't want to turn to it, you can just look up at the screen. We're going to put it right up there. Acts chapter 20. Paul says, beginning in verse 28, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now there's a good shepherd. A good shepherd is somebody who loves his flock, feeds his flock, nurtures his flock, but also warns his flock. Remember Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. His rod and staff, they comfort me. Now, a staff was something to guide sheep. A rod was something the shepherd had on his belt to beat wolves. So if wolves were coming after the sheep, the shepherd wouldn't say, well, that's the wolf's prerogative. He's very sincere about eating my sheep. Who am I to interfere with his belief system? No, he'd beat the thing. Why? To protect sheep. Because this flock of God... Jesus paid for with his own blood and as a pastor. If I'm going to be a good shepherd, I need to feed the flock of God. I need to feed you the word of God. But I also need to warn you about those who are false. Things that are wrong. Jesus did that. Beware of wolves. They come acting like sheep. They come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And as a shepherd, as a pastor, because God's flock is valuable to him, it must be valuable to me. And because God's flock as a shepherd is valuable to me, anyone who's going to work alongside of me, it better be valuable to them. Part of that nurturing and part of that protection that Paul speaks about here. I love one day when Jesus was watching the Pharisees and actually having a conversation with a crowd. And the Pharisees came and spoke something to the disciples. They just kind of went over by themselves and started talking to Jesus' followers. And Jesus stopped, turned toward that conversation and said, what are you talking to him about? I love that. Not that he didn't know being omniscient, but he called them to public accountability. What are you saying? Uh, Bring it out in the open. Tell us publicly. That's a shepherd who loves his sheep. Listen to the words of Martin Luther. He said, Even if I preach correctly and shepherd the flock with sound doctrine, I neglect my duty if I do not warn the sheep against wolves. 
For what kind of builder would I be if I were to pile up masonry, then stand by while another tears it down? The wolf does not object to our leading the sheep to good pastures. The sheep that have been fattened are the more eagerly sought by him. What he can't tolerate is that the watchdogs stand on guard ready to give him battle. And he also said this, a preacher must be both a soldier as well as a shepherd. He must nourish and defend and teach. He must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and to fight. Not that I'm going to literally take somebody out and pummel them if they don't agree with my belief system, but I'm ready to defend the truth. Put up a good fight for the faith, Jude tells us in his little book of verse 3. So now let's go back to um, where I told you to turn to but never really read any of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He begins, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well tolerate it or put up with it. Paul felt awkward. He calls it a little folly. Just bear with me. Just put up with this little tirade of foolishness. Here I go. I don't want to boast, but I feel it necessary to act this foolishly, putting myself on the par of those false prophets who are always going around boasting of themselves. I need to defend my apostleship because you tolerate false prophets. Now, it would seem strange that Paul would have to defend his track record as an apostle. I mean, the record speaks for itself. His career spoke for itself. There was fruit. There were people coming to Christ. Churches were thriving. And so here's these false apostles coming in, getting down on Paul, doubting his apostleship, casting aspersions in the minds of the Corinthians. And Paul has to defend himself. When Paul is the one who had the fruit, they didn't go out and start churches. They didn't put up with all the persecutions and the beatings and having to march forward at the call of the Lord and do what Paul did. It reminds me of some seminary professors, not all, but some, who become experts on the church having never pastored a single church. They hide behind their books and their histories and their linguistics and they poke fun at what's wrong with everybody else but they're not out there at all bearing any fruit as far as pastoral ministry is concerned these apostles only came to Corinth once a church in Corinth was established they didn't start anything Paul started it and Paul was there day in and day out teaching and nurturing they as we said last week were like mistletoe They were a parasitic plant that grew off the life of something else. That's when they came in. And so Paul says, For I am jealous 
for you with godly jealousy. I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. I love it. Paul pictures himself as the father of the bride. The bridegroom is Christ. You know that one of the metaphors for the church is the bride of Christ. Paul pictures himself as the father. He's already called himself their spiritual father, giving them spiritual birth by presenting the gospel to them. So now he's saying, like a proud papa of the bride who wants to nurture up his daughter, having already betrothed her to Christ. Now, as you know, marriages in those days were not like modern-day marriages. Today, people date. They make their own choices. Sometimes good, sometimes not too good. In those days, marriages were arranged when you were a little child. Your parents would take you to somebody's house, and there would be a little boy or a little girl, depending, of course, which you are, and uh, make a decision on your future. They would shake hands, the parents, and decide who you're going to marry. Now, you and I hear that and think, I don't like that. I don't like somebody choosing for me. I want to choose for myself. But i got to tell you, when I look at the divorce rate today versus the divorce rate back then, I think they were doing a better job. I have a friend from India, a place where they still arrange marriages in Christian homes. And I said, oh, this is horrible. How can you guys put up with it? He said, Skip, I never heard of divorce in my life till I came to your country. (laughs) We do not have them here. But in America, they're all over the place. But anyway, in a Jewish marriage, there was an arrangement that took place when they were both young. Then one year before the actual wedding ceremony was a year of betrothal. This was official engagement. You couldn't break that engagement unless you filed official divorce papers. The girl stayed at home with her father, her parents. She was waiting for the time. During that one year of betrothal, the young couple got to know each other, spent time together. No physical relationships, but they got to know the mind and the heart, the interests, the loves, the dislikes of each other. So they were then ready for the marriage. Then when the year passed, the second phase was the coming of the groom. On a certain day, the groom would come at an unexpected time. They knew he was coming on a certain day day, but they didn't know what time, what hour. And so the bride would prepare herself early, and she would have her attendants, the virgins who were around her, her bridesmaids, and the groom could come at any time and then take her, here's the third phase, to his home for the ceremony. And they would enter into a procession down the main street of the town. People would be singing and joining They would have the marriage ceremony followed immediately by festivities. They'd sing to the couple. They would have a marriage supper that lasted several days. And then the married couple would go to the marriage chamber. We are in phase one. We're engaged to Jesus. We're getting to know him. We're waiting for his coming at any time. Soon we're going to move into phase two. You see, you and I became engaged to Jesus the day you were converted. And ever since then, you've been learning more about him, more about him. And now you're at a place where you think, I can't wait for the Lord to come. Is he coming today? And one day, 
He's literally, literally going to sweep you off your feet. Take you instantaneously to heaven to be with him at the rapture of the church. I remember my own awkward courtship, and I thank God that mine is not the model. <laughs> I thank God that he loves me so differently. I became close friends with Lenya. We dated for a while, and I got to tell you, like a lot of single guys, maybe I was the worst case. I was just absolutely flaky. And so we went out for a while, and then I dumped her. That's really the best way to put it. I had a nice way of saying, the Lord is leading me differently. I want to go in a different direction, and I feel the Holy Spirit. And basically, it was just fluff to say, I don't want to commit, all right? So we were apart for a while, a couple years. Then I grew interested in her again, and she was very wary of me, very shy, because she thought, this guy isn't quite sure. And when I told her I was sure, I then proposed to her. But the way I proposed to her was awkward. The night I proposed to her, I gave her a parable. <laughs> now, you know, when Jesus spoke in parables, a lot of times the disciples went, Huh? What do you mean by that? Well, that's what she did. Instead of saying, Lenya, I love you. I commit myself to you. Will you be my wife? I'll be your husband forever. I said, you know, Lenya, in life sometimes you're at a, a crossroads. And the light can be red, but sometimes it can be green and you go. But then other times it's yellow and it means wait. And you wonder, should I go right or should I go left? And she went, you know, what? Have you been drinking or what? what? What is this? About midway into the parable, a thought dawned on her. Oh my goodness. He's going to ask me to marry him. He's just acting like a real geek. That's all this is about. And sure enough, she sort of shook me and she said, did you hear what I said? What? I said, yes. Yes, what? Yes, I'll marry you. What? You just asked me to marry you, and I said I would. And I stood up, I go, now wait a minute. We can't rush into this. We've got to talk about this. We just don't rush into things like this. And so she thought, there he goes again. He's not sure. Well, Jesus is sure. He picked you, as we discussed Sunday, from the foundations of the earth, right? Chosen in Christ, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, before the foundations of the earth. You're engaged to him. And he wants to keep you in that place of simplicity. Don't complicate the Christian life. I watch so many Christians begin so well, and they dry up or they become legalistic, which is probably the problem at Corinth. And they get so narrow-minded, so tight, the joy leaves, the fruit of the Spirit leaves. Instead of that simple devotion, that's what Paul was concerned about. That pure-hearted devotion, or what he calls here the simplicity that is in Christ. About one day, you're going to see Jesus face to face. One day will be your wedding feast, your wedding supper in heaven. And I remember how nervous I was on my wedding day. Man, I was thinking to even the very last minute, I don't know about this. I don't know if I should do this. I was just so nervous. I knew it was a lifelong commitment until I saw Lenya coming down the aisle, and I melted. I went, oh, wow. 
It's all it took. One day you're going to see Jesus face to face. And everything else will melt away. And you will also, with the church, go through a seven-year or a period in that seven years while there's tribulation on earth of a marriage supper in heaven. And Jesus Christ will then unfold his thousand-year millennial kingdom, his reign upon the earth, and you'll be a part of that. Paul says, I'm jealous for you with godly jealousy. You know jealousy is good in a relationship if it's well-placed. God is jealous. Did you know that? God says in in the book of uh, Exodus, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. He didn't want them flirting with the gods of the Canaanites as well as some devotion to him and some devotion to them. Pure-hearted devotion. Now, I'm not a jealous husband. I'm very secure in my wife's love for me and my love for her. But i got to tell you, if somebody starts flirting with her, getting too close, they're going to have to watch out because I may deck them. <laughs> Jealousy is good in a relationship if somebody is ruining the primary relationship of love in a marriage. I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. False prophets are very crafty. They've got it wired. They wait till you're cornered and alone so that your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he comes, who comes, preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Now, he's being sarcastic. He's being sarcastic in a sanctified sense. He's saying, boy, you guys will tolerate anything. You'll tolerate anyone. Let me, in the spirit of Paul in this epistle, plead with all of you to add discernment to your life. Tolerance is not a virtue in certain areas. It is in some areas. In other areas, it's not. It's dangerous. If you tolerate poison, you'll die. If you tolerate somebody giving you wrong directions, you'll get lost. If you tolerate an airline pilot who goes in the direction of Hawaii, but maybe is off one or two degrees... By the time he gets that far out over the ocean, he won't even be close to the Hawaiian Islands. The Corinthians tolerated immorality. The Corinthians tolerated false doctrine. The Corinthians tolerated false apostles, and Paul rebuked them for it. The Galatians tolerated legalism and legalistic teachings, and Paul rebuked them for it. Discernment is so necessary to add to our faith. 1 John chapter 4, brethren, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God, for many false prophets are gone out into the world. Did you know there's a gift, a spiritual gift called the gift of discernment? I suggest that you go home and pray for it, that you might be able to tell truth from error. All of us need that, one of the spiritual gifts. Mark Twain noted that a lie can make its way all the way around the world while truth is still lacing up her boots. Interesting way to put it. Just because a guy has a collar on or reads from a Bible or has a TV or radio ministry or writes books does not necessarily mean, oh, they're okay, I'll listen to them. No, like we were warned even in our interview, we need to become like the Bereans 
who listened to Paul the Apostle and received what he had to say with great readiness of mind, but searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What I love about Paul is that Paul commended them for doing this. You know, Paul didn't strong-arm anyone. What are you doing checking the Bible? You don't have to. If I said it, I'm an apostle. It's got to be true. I'm going to write half the New Testament, don't you know? No, he said, check it out with what you know is scriptural truth. It's a safeguard. For I consider that I am at all not inferior to the most eminent apostles, or as one version puts it, the super apostles. Now, he could be referring to Peter, James, John, and the others, the super apostles, the guys that were with Jesus since his his own apostolic authority was being challenged in Corinth, or most probably this is a reference to the false apostles who came to Corinth and said, we are the super apostles. We're the real deal. Paul, you know, he's not. He continues, even though I am untrained in speech, we covered that last week, yet I am in knowledge I may not be as eloquent as some of these guys, but I know my theology. I know what I'm talking about. But we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. The record speaks for itself. Did I commit sin in abasing myself that you might be exalted? Because I preached to you the gospel of God free of charge. I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what was lacking to me, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Paul was criticized. Get this. This is going to sound strange, but he was criticized because in Corinth he didn't receive any money from them or support for his ministry. And so these false apostles said, well, you know, even the Old Testament says a workman is worthy of his hire. And if Paul is not receiving any financial help from you for his ministry, he must not be worth his salt. He must lack confidence in his calling. He's not a real apostle because he's not receiving money from you. So Paul said, what, that's a bad thing? You're mad at me for not taking money from you like these guys who are actually ripping you off? Now, why why didn't Paul take money? He he did take money from other churches. He said, I robbed other churches, and, and simply that's a metaphor. I received support from other churches so that I could minister to you for free. You remember the Philippian church? Philippians chapter 4, you did send aid, Paul writes, you did send aid to me once and again. Those in Macedonia, those in Philippi, kept Paul afloat, financially supporting his ministry so that in Corinth, he wouldn't have to feel like he was exploiting prospective believers. And he never wanted the Corinthians, some of who would gather and weren't Christians, he didn't want to take an offering from them for himself. He took it for the church in Jerusalem. But he was a tent maker. He supported himself and was supplemented in the ministry to be kept afloat by the church there in Macedonia. It's interesting. A couple years ago, um, the band that I'm with, the Lively Hearts, Paul Skaz, myself, and a couple others, we were in Scotland and we were at this church. And it was a church that 
boasted an apostolic authority and the, the head apostle for the region took an offering. And he didn't tell me he was doing this. He took an offering for us. These have come from America. Dig deep. Support them. They need to go and do God's work. And I felt so embarrassed. I didn't want the offering from them. I didn't know if they were believers. And uh, I didn't know if they were all. I knew many of them were. But just he passed the offering and gave the, the money to me. And I said, thank you. And I receive it in the name of the Lord and donate all of this money to the missionaries that you have out on the mission field. Do you have any missionaries? He said, oh, yeah, we sent a couple out to so-and-so. I said, great. They need this support. Let's send it to them. You should have seen the look on his face. I mean, it was worth everything. He couldn't believe it. You're not going to take the money? I said, I don't need the money. We're supported. We have everything we need. We're taken care of. God has blessed us. We don't want to take from you. We've come to give to you. It's taken care of. This is the Lord's gift to you. If you want to give, give to those who are in the mission field. Really? Really? And he was just scratching his... He asked me probably four times, I think. Really? The Corinthians just... Paul wanted just to love them, didn't want to be a burden to them. Why? Because I do not love you, verse 11, God knows. In other words, God knows that I do. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles. In other words, I'm not going to give them a leg to stand on Because they're trying to say they're just like we are. They're as good as the true apostles. That they do everything we do. They don't. And Paul says, I'm going to keep up my style. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers. Notice the language. Transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. They wear a mask. Jesus called them wolves who come to you in sheep's clothing. You're never going to have a false prophet introduce himself as a false prophet. He's never going to knock on the door. Excuse me, I am your neighbor, neighborhood apostate false prophet. And I would like to deceive you. May I spend 20 minutes with you? First of all, they don't think they are. Second, they're going to use all of the language you're used to. Oh, you're a Christian. You believe in Jesus. Praise the Lord, brother. So do I. I have a Bible as well. You see, here is where discernment is needed. They use the same terminology, but there is a disguise in the definition that is used for the same terminology. What you mean by Jesus is not what many cultists, cultists in general believe Jesus to be. He is a man. He is a person. He is the son of Mary. He's not God in human flesh. So that's why you have to define terminology. So the false prophet isn't going to go, I'm a wolf. He's going to go, You're going to go, oh, it's another sheep. Lift up the mask. See what's underneath. Probe a little bit deeper. Don't fall for something right away. He calls them deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, 
For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. In the tribulation period, there is coming the sidekick to the Antichrist. His name is the false prophet. He comes looking like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. So examine the language, the wording, the speech, the doctrine. Therefore, it is no great thing, verse 15, if his ministers transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now, he's pulling out the heavy guns here. He's just coming right out and saying, they're false. They're like their master, the devil. They come with the masks on, but they're ripoffs underneath. Remember growing up and seeing the pictures in the cartoons of the devil? What did he look like? He had little horns, right? Red. There's always fire around him. Sinister look. Goatee. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> Pointed tail, pitchfork. The sinister looking guy. Well, I mentioned goatee because once when I had my goatee, somebody said, you look like the devil. <laughs> and I said, how do you know? It's because we were raised with this weird image of, of, of Satan. By the way, that, that whole uh, visualization comes from an ancient Greek myth, the god Paneus, who was worshipped later as Dionysus, was pictured as half man, half beast, with the horns and the pitchfork. That's where it comes from. But Satan was an angel of light at the beginning. Beautiful, splendorous, the anointed cherub that covers, the Bible says. God didn't create the devil. God created Lucifer, this angel of light. Well, how did he become the devil? God didn't create the devil. The devil created the devil. Lucifer, in his fall, in his willful rebellion, transformed himself from an angel of light and the repercussions, the result of that was an angel of darkness. He was placed at a lower level, cast out. Ever since then, he tries to put on the disguise of an angel of light. And as that is sort of the preliminary example, he says it's no wonder then that his followers or his apostles, his ministers, diakonoi, his servants, also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. Satan is not always going to come repulsively, but attractively. Knocking on your doors with people with smiles and little books, bicycles, literature. Brother, sister, be careful. Whose end will be according to their works. And I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. In other words, you know, this, uh, he's not denying that he's speaking from revelation. He's just saying, I know that I'm not to boast. That's not the heart of the Lord to boast. I feel that I have to descend to the level of the foolish false prophet, as it says in Proverbs, answer a fool according to his folly. Because they're willing to put up with the foolish, but not the true. So he abases himself to that level. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage. If one devours you. 
if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say, we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone else is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. There were some marks of a true apostle. Remember what they were? They had to physically be with Jesus Christ. They had to be witnesses of his resurrection. And they had to have miraculous powers or the works of an apostle. Now the first two, seeing the Lord Jesus Christ risen, being with him, was sort of taken care of when Paul was on the road to Damascus and Jesus appeared to him and spoke to him. And that was testified by a guy named Ananias who came to him and said, God has called you to be Jesus' apostle, his representatives to the Gentiles, to the kings of this world and to the children of Israel. And then later to the Corinthians, the first book, he says, Have I not seen the Lord? That was one of the calling cards, the criteria for an apostle. You are with him, you see his resurrected state. And third, miracles. And look over in chapter 12, verse 12. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. The proofs were in Paul. Yet, here's the, here's the kicker, here's the irony. You put up with it, verse 20, if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if somebody takes from you, if one exalts himself or, notice, strikes you on the face. Remember the guy I told you about on the news last night? Arthur Allen Jr.? Here, here he has people in his church, and he's hitting them. And... and It's amazing that he's doing it. It's more amazing that they put up with it. That's what Paul's getting to. If somebody takes money from you, abuses you, brings you into legalistic bondage, you'll put up with it. It amazes me that people will go to churches who don't feed them the Word of God, don't nourish them in the the truth of God, in the fellowship of the Spirit, but rather beg money from them and people put up with it. And the guiltier the sermon, the better. Oh, isn't that great? I feel like a toad. How about you? Yeah, me too. I can't wait for next week. It must make make people feel comfortable in that area of guilt. To our shame, I say we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. By the way, Just as they came to Corinth, uninvited. One of their marks is you don't have to look for false prophets. They'll come to you. Jesus said, they will come to you in sheep's clothing. One of my first Bible study experiences in Garden Grove, California, was a home Bible study. It was a night like this, a Tuesday evening in a living room. We were working our way through a New Testament book. And one of these false apostles showed up. Now, he didn't have a sign, false apostle. He didn't have a pitchfork or horns. But he did have a prophecy. I don't despise prophecies. I want to listen to them and see if they're from the Lord, discern and judge. But he said he had a word from the Lord for a young lady in our fellowship who was a beautiful young lady. And he said... She is to be my wife. The Lord spoke to me. And he turned to her and he said, you're, you're going to marry me. 
you're going to be my wife. Thus saith the Lord, and he had, he did it in King James, so it sounded a little more official. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt be my wife from this day henceforth. Something like that. And she was sort of stunned and looked incredulously at me and held up her left hand with her wedding ring on her finger. She said, I am married. And then it got worse. He proceeded to say, well, then obviously you've disobeyed God in marrying the wrong man. At that point, I grew livid. I wanted to tear him limb from limb. I wanted just five minutes in the flesh, Lord. That's all I ask. Let me get in the flesh with this guy outside for five minutes. Then I'll repent and it'll be all right. Didn't happen. That's good. But uh, he was kicked out and he never came back. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they seed of Abraham? So am I. All the things they're boasting of, I am too. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. <laughs> now, get this. He's going to give his credentials and he's not going to say, I, Paul, I have a master's degree in biblical studies, a Ph.D. in theology from Jerusalem U. <laughs> His credentials are interesting. They, they, the false apostles, probably were Judaizers. You've heard that term before. They were Palestinian Jews with some kind of letters from some authority in Jerusalem. And they would pull out their letters. Here's my letter, man. Here's my apostolic authority, my ordination certificate. And Paul said, okay, I'm going to give you my certification. Here's my credentials. Listen to them. Not what you'd expect. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths more often from the Jews five times. I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and the day I, I've been in the deep and journeys often in perils of waters, perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, Perils, perils, perils. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things which comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. His credentials were his scars. Would to God that when it comes to choosing leaders, organizations and churches would say, we want to see your scars. We want to know all the fruit in your life and the hardships you've been through, the things that have forged you as you are today. Don't tell us what seminary you graduated from. How's your walk with Christ? How's your quiet time? How's your prayer life? How's your wife and your children and the relationship you have with them? And what are you willing to endure for Christ's sake? Paul says, there's my credentials. That proves that I'm true. All that I've been through and steadfastly I've stuck to the truth. Besides the other things, here's the mark of a shepherd. What comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. That's the heart of a shepherd. Are they growing? Are they learning? Are they walking? Are they applying? Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? In other words, when somebody I love and know that I've ministered to, my flock, 
when they're brokenhearted, when they hurt, when they're weak, I feel the weakness. I weep with those who weep. I laugh with those who laugh. I must boast. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity, things that we'll get to next week. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus with a garrison desiring to apprehend me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. And we'll continue his story about his infirmities next week. But these Judaizers who came from Jerusalem with their letters, with their credentials, were bringing them, he said, into bondage, verse 20, devouring them. And I watch it happen still today. People who lay a trip on them. Do you keep the Sabbath? Do you worship on Saturday? Sunday is the mark of the beast. You need to worship on Saturday. And when I meet one of these people, I say, I don't think you're keeping the Sabbath law. Oh, I do keep the Sabbath law and all the, all the regulations. Do you keep the Sabbath dietary regulations? Do you keep not only the Sabbath day, but do you keep the Sabbath year? That's part of the Sabbath law. The seventh year, in other words, do you let your work lie fallow? Do you take a whole year off and do nothing, just collecting what you've laid up for yourself? And do you keep the Jubilee year, which is part of the full Sabbath law? Well, no, I don't. That's Old Testament. Well, so is the Sabbath, buddy. Or if you haven't been baptized by our eldership and our church, you're truly not saved. Boy, what would they do with me? I was baptized in a swimming pool. And it wasn't even a real swimming pool. It was one of those plastic doughboy swimming pools. <laughs> I'm sure they would say, well, it's invalid. Unless we did it. Now, remember 1 John chapter 4. Test the spirits to see whether they are of God. First of all, give them a test of character. Do they have the fruit of the Spirit? You know Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, etc. Do they have that? The fruit of the Spirit is the character of Christ formed by the Spirit of Christ in the life of a follower of Christ. Look for that. Second of all, the test of creed. The test of character followed by the test of creed. What do they say about Jesus? They come to the door. They have a spiel. You meet with them wherever. They have a spiel. Cut to the quick. Tell me about Jesus. I believe in him. Tell me who he is. Tell me what you believe him to be. Is he God in human flesh, the second person of the Trinity, sent to this earth to physically die for our sins on a cross? We could come no other way to bodily resurrect from the dead who is coming again. Ask them those questions. Be a Berean, Acts 17, 11. Remember Jesus talked about the narrow gate. The false prophet seeks to broaden the gate. Really, they broaden. Oh, you might think, oh, they're narrower. No, they're not. They broaden the gate. They tell you you can be saved by keeping good works, going to their church, keeping their, their rules and regulations. Jesus said the only way to heaven is by believing in his finished work. Then 
The third test is the test of converts. The test of character, the test of creed, and the test of converts. Look at the lives of the people that follow their system. Someone will come and say, I want to speak to this church. I have a message from God. God has showed me something that he hasn't showed anybody else, not even you. And I'll always tell them, tell you what, let me watch your life for a while and see the result of this new revelation and new teaching in you. If it makes you more like Jesus and makes you so much more like Jesus than us, well, then we need to hear it. So, dig into the scriptures. Pray for discernment. And start looking under the sheepskin. See if you can pull it up if there's a wolf underneath there. Don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to challenge lovingly. Let's pray.